Today on The Voice of Prophecy, I'm going to pick up our study of the book of Revelation right where I left off last time, partway into Revelation chapter 1. So you might want to go and get your Bible, because it's just about time to start. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today we're going to pick up reading the book of Revelation partway into chapter 1, the very spot I left off last time I was looking at this mysterious book. Now, if you missed part 1, you might want to look for it over on iTunes or on the Voice of Prophecy website so that you can catch up. You can get some of the background that we established before we started reading. But honestly, you haven't missed a lot at this point because... We only made it through chapter 1 and verse 3, that all-important verse that makes it abundantly clear that God really does intend for you to understand this book. It says in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now that whole verse deals a bit of a death blow to people who argue, and trust me, there are lots of them, people who argue that the book of Revelation is somehow incomprehensible, that God never meant for you to understand this stuff. How in the world, let me ask this, how in the world can God bless you for reading this book and listening to what it says and doing what it says if you just can't understand it? It wouldn't make sense. And as you and I work our way through the key parts of this book, I think you're going to see that it's simply not true. It takes a little bit of effort. There's no question. To read Revelation, it does take some homework. But believe me, you really can understand this. I've been teaching it for more than two decades, and I've seen thousands and thousands of people say, hey, this book's not that hard. So I want to pick up today in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Actually, let's back up to Revelation 1 for a moment, because there's a key thought there in the opening statement of the book that I don't want you to miss. Here it is, Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, I want you to think about that statement very carefully for a moment. Open your Bible and look at it, Revelation 1, verse 1. I want you to look at it because today when most people talk about the book of Revelation, they speak as if the whole thing is going to happen at some point in the distant future, maybe in just the last few moments, the last few years of Earth's history. People talk about Revelation as if it's only about the last few closing moments, but look at what it actually says. Look at the language that John actually uses. He wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and the angel says that the things he's about to see in vision are going to take place shortly, as in the near future in John's day. There is nothing in the language of the book itself that indicates that this book, the book of Revelation, is only about the last few years of Earth's history. What John is about to see, what John is about to describe, what you and I are going to read together in the weeks to come as we work our way through this book, well, the angel said, this is going to start happening right away. It will happen shortly. The book of Revelation actually shows us the history of the New Testament period, the history of the New Testament church, all in advance. 
and it stretches all the way from John's day down to the second coming of Christ, and it goes over that ground again and again several times. It covers that ground, the whole history of the world in the New Testament period. It covers it through the seven churches, which represents seven distinct periods in church history. And then it goes over that same history several times more from differing perspectives and with new details each time so that you and I learn well and we don't miss the key points. So in other words, I guess I'm saying the book of Revelation is written historically. It's history in advance. It shows us a long chain of events that stretch all the way from the first century to the moment when Jesus comes back. Now, if that's a new way of thinking, if that's a new concept to you, if you've never heard that before, that the book of Revelation is historical, and that it covers in a continuous way the whole sweep of New Testament history, well, I should probably tell you that that's exactly how most Christians read this book for the first 1,800 years of the Christian church. And then there was a major shift in thinking early in the 19th century. I mean, this whole idea that John was only writing about the very distant future, that's a new idea. We came up with that in the last couple of hundred years. That's an idea that the early church fathers and the Christians of the first few centuries would have found very strange. Now, that should raise a red flag in the minds of careful thinkers. Why exactly did we change our approach just a few generations ago? Why have we now chosen to ignore the angel's very pointed declaration that the predictions of the book of Revelation were going to happen shortly back in John's day. Is there a reason we changed? Maybe more importantly, is there a justification for the change? Now, I'm not sure that I'd be able to answer that question today, but as we read through the book together, I'm sure you're going to find the answer for yourself, because when you read the book of Revelation historically, when you read it the way it was intended, some really amazing stuff suddenly rises to the surface, and it paints a picture that, well, it blew me away the first time I saw it. And again, the picture that develops as we're going to study together, that picture would be nothing new for our ancestors in the Christian faith. What you and I are going to see as we study together wouldn't have surprised our ancestors in the slightest, because they all read the book of Revelation this way. But what I'm going to do is we're going to go through the book together, and I'm going to let you see it for yourself so that you can learn to ask all the right questions. And that will happen over the weeks as we study together. For now, though, let's get back to Revelation chapter 1, because we have only scraped the surface, and it's really important that we have the right foundation so that the rest of this book makes good sense. In chapter 1, verse 1, right at the top of the book, the angel says to John, look, the stuff you're going to witness will happen shortly. It will happen presently. And then he goes on to paint one of the most amazing pictures in the whole Bible. Now, we've already covered verses 2 and 3 in a previous program, so I want to jump down to verse 4 where John starts in on his message to the churches. And, and I've got to warn you, we are probably going to move rather slowly. You might find it painful at moments. We might actually stretch this out over a number of weeks because there's so much important detail in this first chapter. So here we go, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, 
the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over all the kings of the earth. So pay attention carefully to the details here. This is a letter from John, but it's also a letter from Jesus, the central character of the book, the one who inspired it. It's addressed to seven churches that were located in Asia, or more precisely, Asia Minor. The seven churches were all along the same road in what is modern-day Turkey, and it was kind of a horseshoe-shaped road, or an upside-down U. And the idea was that the church in Ephesus would get a copy of this letter, and the pastor would read it to everybody, and then they'd send it down the road to the next church in the town of Smyrna. Then Smyrna would read it and pass it along, and so on, until it made its route all the way along that road. Now, what's interesting about this is that we know for a fact that there were more churches in Asia Minor than just these seven, and some pretty notable churches at that. So there must be a reason that these churches are named and other churches are not. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to come right back and pick up on that thought. Why are these churches mentioned and not others? So don't go away. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from the break. My name is Sean Boonstra, and you're listening to the Voice of Prophecy radio broadcast. And just before we took a break, we were talking about the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And I mentioned that there were actually more than seven churches in Asia Minor. For example, there was another church in the city of Colossae the church that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to. So that, that's a pretty well-known church, certainly not one that's overlooked by God, and yet it doesn't appear in Revelation's list. And that tells me that there's more than meets the eye in this list. If this book was just a message for the first century Christians living in Asia Minor, then it probably should have included everybody, but it doesn't. It zeroes in on seven churches, a distinctly symbolic number, the number of perfection or completion, and these are seven churches with very distinct characteristics. These are churches that actually resemble the history of Christianity over seven distinct historical periods, stretching from John's day to the second coming of Christ. And in the weeks to come, I'll show you just how amazing the similarities between these churches and those historical periods really are. It is so uncanny that most Bible students all over the world are in agreement as to what these seven churches represent. Now, that doesn't mean that this book wasn't addressed to the actual churches in the first century. We know historically that these messages addressed to each church actually matched stuff that was going on in those churches in the first century. It's just that these messages also match what happens to Christians over the next 2,000 years. So, if that's true, and I think you're going to find that it is, if that's true, it means that the book of Revelation is actually addressed to all of us. It's addressed to all believers of all time. This is a direct message from Jesus to the Christians of the first century, but it's also a direct message to you. And that's really what makes the book of Revelation so exciting. It might be 2,000 years old, but it has never lost a single ounce of relevance. It's because 
it addresses the broad sweep of history. It's because portions of it are specifically written to every generation that this proves to be one of the most pertinent books of the whole Bible. Now, of course, the whole Bible is relevant, but the book of Revelation is very special. It actually has specific details that speak directly to every generation from John's time till now. And I think you're going to discover, as we read our way through the whole book, that Revelation has some pretty remarkable things to say about life in the 21st century. Of course, the way some people talk, the whole book is for the 21st century, but that's not true either. And I think you're going to see all of this as we move through the book. All right. Now let's take a look at the description of Jesus as John introduces him in these opening verses. And remember, John might be the physical author of the book, the man who put it to paper, but this is still the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a message from God's Son to you. So let's look at the way John describes him. In verse 4, he gives us a greeting from all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which demonstrates that the early church absolutely believed in a triune God. This is a book from the God who sits on the throne, and you'll see more of that throne in chapters 4 and 5. This is a book from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, that doesn't mean there are seven holy spirits. Remember, seven is a number that represents completeness and perfection, and we'll probably have a chance to examine that a little bit more. So it's also a book from the Holy Spirit and it's a book from Jesus. And Jesus is described in a number of different ways. Because the character of Jesus is so broad, so all-encompassing, that one name or one description just doesn't cover it. I mean, every time I think I've figured out who Jesus is, another aspect of his character rises to the surface. Another personality trait comes out that makes him seem even more magnificent. And honestly, I actually believe that you and I are going to spend all eternity studying the character of Jesus, and I don't think we're ever going to get to the end of it. I know, I've been studying Jesus for several decades now, and every time I think I've seen it all, I discover more. I mean, just look at these few descriptions that John gives right here. He calls Jesus the faithful witness. You might remember, if you've read through John's Gospel, that when Jesus speaks to his Father in John 17, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. And then he says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me. In another place, in John's Gospel again, Jesus says to Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, one of the key things that Jesus accomplished, I mean, apart from redeeming us at the cross, one of the key things he accomplished was to reveal the character of God. After you and I rebelled against God, after we severed our intimate ties with the Creator, our thinking about God became confused. We started to think of him as arbitrary and severe. We started to make him look like the gods of Greek or Roman mythology, unpredictable, angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty. In fact, a lot of people still think about God like that. And the way some people talk about him, you think they were describing a thunderbolt Zeus instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The way we talk about God sounds more like someone who lives on Mount Olympus than someone who lives on Mount Zion. But you know, it's really important that we don't allow pagan mythology or even Hollywood to inform our picture of God. If you want to know what he's like, you have to read the scriptures because that's where he shows himself. And if you really want to know what God is like, you only have to look as far as Jesus, who became a human being in order to bridge this impossible gap between us and God. Jesus came to reveal what God 
is actually like. And that's what makes Jesus the faithful witness. That's what John calls him. But then he goes even further. John also calls him the firstborn. Now, I want to be really careful how I handle this title for Jesus, because some people have taken that expression to mean that Jesus was somehow created. I've actually had people point to this very verse in Revelation and say that God the Father somehow brought Jesus into existence at some point in the ancient past. So Jesus is created, and he's not God. After all, these people say, the book of Revelation says that Jesus was born. And they point to a handful of other passages to make this case. But look at it carefully. That is not what it says. It says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And that's a different thing from just being born. How so? Well, over in Psalm 89, the Bible calls King David firstborn. And it's actually using David to foreshadow Jesus, to predict Christ. Yet, even though it calls him firstborn, I know that David was anything but the firstborn in his family. In fact, he was the little brother. You see, the the term firstborn in the Bible isn't necessarily a chronological term. It actually has more to do with position and prominence. In fact, in Psalm 89.27, when it calls David God's firstborn, it goes on to explain exactly what that means. It says he is, quote, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn is a term that the Bible uses to describe position more than chronology. And in Revelation 1 verse 5, when the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn, it's very important that you read the context carefully. It doesn't just say he's the first to be born. It says that he's the firstborn from the dead, which is a very important qualifier. It's not talking about some day in the ancient past when Jesus suddenly came into existence. This is talking about the day he rose from the dead. And even then, it's not strictly a chronological term because there are several people who rose from the dead before Jesus. I mean, you have Elijah raising the widow's son. You have Jesus raising Lazarus. So chronologically speaking, Jesus was not the first to come back from the grave. But there's no question that Jesus is the most important resurrection of all time. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nobody rises from the dead ever. If Jesus just died and his body is still buried in a grave somewhere near Jerusalem, the way James Cameron would have you believe, then there's no hope for the human race. And Paul makes that really clear in his letter to the Corinthian church. I mean, listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the dead are gone forever. Now listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. How is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? It's because his resurrection is the key to everybody's future. It's because Jesus rose from the dead that you and I will one day rise from the dead too. Ah, but wait a minute, somebody says. Doesn't the Bible also say that Jesus was begotten of the Father? 
Well, yeah, it does. In fact, it says it quite a few times. But does that mean that Jesus was something less than God, that he was created at some point? Well, absolutely not. Again, it is really important that you understand these concepts by putting them in the context of the entire Bible. If you take a look at Paul's sermon in Acts 15, you'll see exactly what the Bible writers mean when they say Jesus was begotten of the Father. Paul tells his audience that Jesus was begotten on the very day he was raised from the dead. And obviously, Jesus existed before that. Now, I'm up against another quick break. I mean, I can't believe how fast the clock on the wall runs through my time when I'm in the book of Revelation. But let's take that break really quickly, and then I'll come back and we'll look at a few more of these titles for Jesus. So hang tight. I'm coming right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning? Just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from our break. You are listening to the Voice of Prophecy, and today it's one of those days when we're reading our way through the book of Revelation. And we're right now in Revelation 1, verse 5. We've looked at Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, and we saw that Jesus is the key to everybody's future. Because he rose from the dead, you and I don't have to fear the grave. Jesus lives, so we have a future. He's called the firstborn from the dead because he became a human being and lived a sinless life and then conquered the grave. And now the world becomes his kingdom and you and I have a future there. Now, with the very few minutes I have left, I want to look at the final description of Jesus in verse 5 because it's intimately tied to this same idea. The verse ends by calling Jesus the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, obviously... The kingdoms, the nations of this world are still being run by a lot of very imperfect people. And in some cases, the governments of this world are being run by some very corrupt individuals. So in what sense can we say today that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth? Well, the key to understanding that is actually found over in Daniel chapter 7, a passage which describes the final judgment in a lot of incredible detail. I mean, if I had another hour today, I'd walk you through that passage step by step. But I don't have the time, so let me just summarize what happens. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel sees the throne of God, and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, approach that throne at the conclusion of the judgment. And this is what Daniel says he saw. Verse 14, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, that's obviously still in the future, but the Bible clearly teaches again and again and again and again that Jesus inherits this planet. He was born as a human being. He lived a sinless life. He paid the penalty for our sin, and then he rose from the dead. Paul calls Jesus a second Adam, a second head of the human race. 
When the first Adam was created, the Bible says God gave him dominion over this world. He actually put us in charge. He made us stewards of his creation. But the moment we sinned, the devil claimed this planet as his own, which is why you see him trying to offer it back to Jesus during the temptation of Christ. There's no need to die on a cross, the devil says. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Just worship me. Well, of course Jesus didn't do it, because you and I would have been lost forever if he'd done it. Instead, Jesus takes back this planet the hard way. He pays for our sins, and then he rises from the dead. And because of that, after the judgment, when everybody's had a chance to examine the books and decide for themselves if God really is everything he's ever claimed to be, that's when the planet belongs to him. That's when Jesus finally claims his prize. That's when he comes back, Zechariah chapter 14, and he puts his foot on this earth, a clear act of taking ownership. Now, here's how this actually affects you in your life. There is no question that ultimately Jesus wins. There is no question that he's already won this world, and at the close of the judgment, it's given to him for all time. There is no question that he's the firstborn from the dead. There is no question that he's the new head of the human race, and that we can inherit everything in him. There's no question. The kingdoms we build, the empires we build, the stuff we do, it's all going to pass away. And God is going to establish a kingdom under his only begotten Son, a kingdom that lasts forever. But you know, the amazing thing about this is that God not only wants to give that kingdom to Jesus, he actually wants to give it to you. Now, you don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, but in Jesus, he says we can have it. In Romans eight seventeen, the Bible says, Jesus made it possible for you and I to be children of God. And if we're children of God, Paul says, then we can be joint heirs with Christ. In other words, you can own a piece of this kingdom with Jesus, not because you deserve it, but because he bought it. He paid for it with his blood, and he's offering to bring you in. Because in his mind, to his way of thinking, the kingdom that's coming just wouldn't be the same without you. The question is, what are you going to do with it? These kingdoms, the ones that we're investing in so heavily in this world, they're going to pass away. If you build your whole life on this planet, on your own ambitions, on the things that are around you, you need to know there is a finish line coming, and it's all going to pass away. You'll be lost with the world that God's going to replace. So why would you cling to that stuff? Instead, cling to the kingdom that's coming. Invest your heart in the kingdom of Christ. Place yourself in his care. What have you got to lose? It seems to me like it's the wisest investment of all time. Jesus is the which means that you don't even have to fear the grave now. If he doesn't come before you pass, you still don't have to fear. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, you can rise from the dead. And you can face a future forever living and reigning with Jesus. What have you got to lose? Now, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week, reading our way through Revelation. So I'm going to stop right there, and the next time we meet, we'll pick up again with the next passage in Revelation chapter 1. For now, thanks for listening. My name is Sean Boonstra, and this has been The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. I hope that you're enjoying this study in Revelation as much as I am. 
Revelation is one of the books in the Bible that the more I read it and study it, the clearer it becomes. God really does bless me when I read this book that was once only a mystery to me. Now I read it like a letter from an old friend. Well, if you're searching for answers in Revelation or for questions you have in life in general, I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. The 26 Discover Guides cover a whole range of subjects, including the ones that we've been talking about today. If you're wondering how you can get more out of your everyday life, guide number five, Bridge to a Satisfying Life, will walk you through just that. And if you've wondered about the end times, guide number eight makes practical sense of end time events. You can study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.